Uh, appreciate David teaching uh, chapters 2 through 5 and uh, doing the chapter 5, which is not necessarily a difficult section to teach, but it's just, it's, it's filled with so much rich imagery and song. And we're going to go ahead and move into chapter 6 in our study together tonight. And uh, David and I were talking about chapter 6 earlier today. You know, it's 40 verses. It's rather lengthy. Come back to that in a second. And um, as a result, um, it's a little bit challenging to cover. Let me make sure here that I've got this set up the way I want to set Yeah, let's. So just as a review from what we've talked about, this is the cycle of judges. And we had three different options of alliteration and cycles and circles uh, some of you, uh, a couple of people asked for this slide. Uh, if you want it, just let me know if it helps you. But it starts with Israel serving the Lord, and we've already seen this with some of the judges that we've developed thus far. And then they fall into sin and idolatry, or they, you, they, the rebellion word that we used a couple of weeks ago. Then they are given over to some sort of foreign nation, typically, where they are enslaved. And then after a period of time, sometimes a lengthy period of time, they cry out to God. That's at the bottom of the circle and say, we are sorry. That's the repentance R that we've talked about. God raises up a judge and rescues or redeems them to the point where they are back at the top and they say, we will serve the Lord. We will never do that again. We will always be faithful to the Lord. And then something happens. They get distracted by the foreign gods and then they start the cycle over again. And we said this uh, a couple of weeks ago that we can be very critical of Israel during this time and they deserve criticism. But at the same time, we can, we can mimic this cycle very, very well. In our own personal lives, uh, it could be in the, in the congregation, in a congregational life as well. But certainly individually, we get into this trap of, I'm going to do what you want me to do. And then days, weeks, months go by, and then we get distracted, and then this whole thing starts again. So that's the cycle that we're talking about. Speaking of cycle and shifts in cycle, that's where we start tonight in chapter 6 and verse 1. Verse 1 in the New King James Version starts with the word then. You may have the word but or however, uh, but it's a transition verse because chapter 5 uh, is this great song of Deborah that is called in, in my Bible and probably in yours as well. And then it starts with this statement that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's almost predictable, unfortunately, that that statement's going to be made the way in which it's made. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Seven years may seem short to some, same, may seem long to some. The older we get... The shorter seven years seems. But seven years is a significant period of time to be under the oppression of the Midianites. But let's talk about the Midianites. Who are the Midianites? And we may have talked about this. I can't remember what we talked about for sure uh, in some of our Genesis and Exodus studies. But what do we know about Midian or the Midianites? And you, if it's short, just uh, shout it out or say it loudly. 
If it's something more lengthy, we'll make sure that Dale gets a microphone to you. What do we know about Midian or the Midianites? Absolutely. So I'll go ahead and put up the two things that I came up with. And the second of that is that Moses went there. Remember in Exodus chapter 2, what did Moses do that caused him to flee to Midian? He killed the Egyptian. Egyptian, And the man said to him, um, hey, I saw what you've done. And he, he, he was fearful. He was frightened. He was scared as to what had transpired. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to point out, just go back to Genesis 25 real, real quickly here, and we'll see that there's a relationship, as is often the case in the Old Testament, the families are intertwined because of someone being a, a nephew or a cousin or a brother, and that certainly is the case here. It says, Abraham, again, took a wife. Her name was Keturah. This is 25, verse 1. Then in verse 2, and we probably talked about this briefly six or seven months ago. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And then the, the Midianites then become a people uh, of themselves. Is there any significance to that? I'm, and so, usually I ask questions because I, we all know the answers and we want to explore it. But is there any lesson that we can learn from this at the outset? I know we'll get into our applications at the conclusion of our study, but any thoughts on that? And the the reason that I did kind of pose that question is because when there is either a... when, When you have these family interactions and then time passes... You have the opportunity for them to interact in this way, and then God uses those very people for his purpose, in this case, to be a punishment on the people, uh, which is in some ways kind of a a double whammy. One, we're being punished. Two, we're being punished at the hands of people that we're actually related to, though be it distantly. And that's got to sting a little bit, at least it seems to me. So there's the the physical side of it and maybe an emotional or psychological side to it as as well. Let's go ahead and read verses 2 through 5 here where it says, And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because the Midianites, the children of Israel, made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown... Midianites would come up, also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them, destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. What does this sound like to you in, in, a, in a phrase or two? This is one of those, guess what I'm thinking, or guess what's on the screen next. I heard someone say something. The plagues of Egypt. Plagues of Egypt. It sounds very plaguey, doesn't it? Absolutely. Thank you, Derek. Yeah, uh, this is devastating. And when, when God does something big, it is something big. It is something dramatic. It is something that is powerful. Very good, Derek. Thank you. Anything else? 
Where do we find the Israelites dwelling or living at this time as recorded in these three or four verses? Caves. caves. Why are they in the caves? It's probably safer. It's safer. And we're, if you've already read ahead and you know the story of, of Gideon better, you, you kind of get a fuller picture of this. But it's, it's safer. It's secure. What else about it? Go ahead, Nathan. Okay, so they're avoiding exposure. Yeah, Brother John. Right, it's it's a way to 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 conceal your produce. If they're going after your produce, then this you have this absolute desperation where they're living and hiding in caves. Here in dense. So here you have God's noble people, God's mighty valuable warriors, these great men of valor, which is what is the phrase used in the book of Joshua repeatedly and used here in, in reference to Gideon, but yet they're, they're, they're so afraid. And I'm not saying that they should be afraid. They should be afraid given what's going on here. It's natural for them to respond in this fashion. What is the treatment of the Midianites towards Israel at this point. What level of torture are they providing? Harassment. Absolutely, harassment's a great word. I came up when in my mind I was reading this a couple weeks ago, uh, and I thought of scorched earth policy or scorched earth warfare, where they are eliminating everything. You know, in civilized warfare, which is in some ways kind of an oxymoron, right? In civilized war. You, you don't target civilians. You don't target crops of peasants. You don't target homes of innocent people. But sometimes there is... I just finished on vacation reading a book about one of my favorite presidents. And the word that was used in the 1960s and 70s by the administrations was spillage. There's sometimes spillage. And that's a, that's a kind way of saying that sometimes innocent people die and bad things happen to people that have no engagement in the war. And, that's, and no one wants that. We don't want that for ourselves when innocent people die in our land. We don't want that when we're fighting someone, the enemy. We want the enemy to, to stop and we want the war to come to an end, the battle to end. But they are going all at it, the Midianites. They are destroying everything. They're destroying the sustenance of the people. So you can imagine how uh, disappointed the people were. And the reason that I'm kind of belaboring this point a little bit is in part because of where we find Gideon in the next couple of verses, uh, when we get down to verse uh, 11. We'll get there in just a second. Let's go ahead, though, uh, and just kind of breeze through 6 through 10. Here We won't read all those verses, but verse 6 says, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So that goes back to the cycle, and again, another shift in the cycle with a penitent heart on the part of Israel here in verse 7. Verse 10, or verse, verse 9, I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians... By way of the plagues, which Derek rightly talked about a few moments ago, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land, 
Also, I said, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So God is being very clear here. He's saying the reason these things are happening should not be a mystery to you. It's because you've done wrong. So just a couple of points about uh, verses 7 through 10. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. And this happens repeatedly, not just in the Old Testament, but especially if you read uh, Acts 2, Acts chapter 7. There's repetition of what God has done in the past in order to remind the people of where they are in the present. And that's one of the reasons that we say that history is so important. So the verses 8, 9, and 10, we didn't read all those, is a recounting. It's a refreshing course He's saying, this is how God, I, have provided for you in the past. Um, that, that's why we are where we are, is what we're saying. Okay? Anything on the first ten verses before we go ahead and transition to really the heart of the chapter, and that's the story of Gideon. Anything we've left out thus far? Because we, we could flesh out further. All right, let's go ahead then to verse 11. Verse 11 in the New King James again says it starts with the word now. So it's a kind of a transition word, a transition statement. Now, the angel of the Lord. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but we'll go down the rabbit hole for just 60 seconds. What do we know about the angel of the Lord? And, or what do we think we know about the angel of the Lord? Any Special messenger sent by God. What is it? An angel is a messenger sent from God. Um, the word literally comes from a word of dispatching, uh, where God says, I've got a message. I'm going to write it on a note. Here, you take it. God can choose to deliver messages in a number of different ways. But one of the ways he does so is through angels. And oftentimes through what is referred to here as a definitive article, the angel of the Lord. Other thoughts about the angel of the Lord. Like I said, there's, there's a whole, whole chapters and books that talk about this particular subject. I have a series of sermons that just talk about the angel of the Lord or angels in general. Yes, Miss Diana. Very good. Uh, and important. So for those that didn't hear, thank you, Miss Diana. Uh, it is capitalized in most of our English translations, most of our versions, the capital angel Lord, and it comes with the definitive article as, a pro, as opposed to occasions where the Bible talks about an angel of the Lord. Uh, and so a particular special angel, perhaps, uh, whether that be a named angel, she mentioned Gabriel as one of the key angels um, or else, someone else. So I thought that was a really interesting point as well. And that's kind of where I was going. Just This is not a study of the angel of the Lord, but it is interesting that he is referenced here as being such an important character, a messenger, but also in, in some ways, uh, one of comfort to Gideon because Gideon, when we find him here, is in a very desperate situation. Uh, so let's note the conditions in which Gideon threshed wheat. And, and Brother John kind of talked about this just a few moments or so ago, but what, what was he doing when he was threshing wheat? Or how was he going about threshing the wheat? In the wine press. He's in the wine press. 
Why is he there? He's hiding. The Bible is very clear about it. So what is threshing wheat for those of us from the city? My understanding is Bruce is, is, Brother Bruce is showing us, right. So you're, you're separating that which is useful from that which is not useful, right? The chaff from the wheat, from the seed. Uh, and it's a process that generally, my understanding is, would be done best in the open air where you can allow the, the less useful components, the chaff, to just blow away in the wind. Well, as Brother Brian pointed out, he's in a wine press uh, and he's hiding conceivably in a place where it's not going to be as easy or as feasible to get the product as pure as what he wants. That's just, that's just my thought process. Either way, this is not ideal. This is, he is not in a free society. So let's read verses 11 through 13. Angel Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was an Oprah, which belonged to Joash the, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. That just, to me, jumps out of the page. I just love that particular phrase. And then verse 13, Gideon said, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So let's talk about verses 12 and 13 for just a moment. Verse 12 strikes me as in some ways ironic. You have this man cowering, hiding his wheat, his produce, his income, his livelihood, and he's afraid of someone seeing it, taking notice of it. And how does the Lord or the angel of the Lord come to him? Although, interestingly enough, going back to the point that Miss Diana pointed out a few moments ago, is that notice how Gideon references the angel or responds to the angel by saying, my Lord. Now, my Bible does have a little uh, marginal note that has something to do with a term that is typically used for God, Adonai, which is the word Lord, um, which there's more to be said about that. That's the rabbit hole we're trying to somewhat avoid. We're just creeping around it tonight. But think about the irony of this where he says, you are a mighty man of valor, a, a man of might, a man of valor. Is there something that we can learn from that? And I, I think there is. I think there's at least one or two applications. But does that strike you with anything? Sure. I think that's a good point. Yeah, he... he He's, he's using his brain, right? Uh, so God responds to him by saying, you are a mighty man of valor. Other thoughts? I think it gives expression to his character. Sure. God knows the character of someone. Is this the first time that God has approached someone who's 
on some surface level, seemingly not ready, not qualified, and, and we're starting to think of all kinds of characters, right? And I think I even, we'll get into that in verses 14, 15, so I want to save that for a But Miss Janita referenced Moses. You know, you cannot help but think about Moses, for example, in Exodus 3 and 4 on this particular occasion as uh, uh, someone like that. Verse 13, talk about the question or the series of questions. I guess it's more than just a question that Gideon poses. What's he asking there in verse 13, in essence? Why are you allowing this to happen? Yeah, why are you allowing this to happen? And he's saying, what about the past? We've heard these stories. Remember, they don't, they don't have the book of Exodus with which to read, right? So we have heard through these oral traditions that have been passed down um, that you have done great and marvelous things. Like Derek talked about. These plagues. What about that? What about the parting of the Red Sea? What about uh, the earth being flooded and a great ark being made? What about, uh, and on and on and on you go. What about all those things? So my early application, and the, the big thing that probably jumps out to you is do we ever ask similar questions? Why is, why is the world spinning out of control? God, you've provided help in the past. Are you going to provide help in the future? One of the, the struggles that I've had and one of the things that I'm working on is when I have an obstacle in my, in my view, something that is distressing me or bothering me or worrying me, and I think, I wonder if I'm going to make it through this challenge or I'm going to get through this difficulty. And then I have to be reminded, sometimes gently, sometimes with a two-by-four, that God's always provided in the past... He may not provide in the way in which I want him to do it, but he's always taken care of me, and he's always, everything's worked out. It's worked out somehow. Not always perfectly, not always the way I wanted it to work out, but it worked out for my, for my good. And it reminds me of one of Brother John's favorite verses in Deuteronomy, that his word is there for what purpose? It's for our good always, right? And Romans chapter 8 says, in, in paraphrasing Romans 8, 28, 29, that um, things work out well for Christians. That's a, that's a broad paraphrase. <laughs> I made that up. But, but you, you get my point, right? Okay. Other thoughts on this? I, I just love the idea where he's, he's asking these questions. Brother John, where, where's, where's the stuff in the past? Here in verse... 13, he's, this is uh, Gideon talking. He says, but now the Lord has abandoned us. Mm-hmm. I think he got that backwards. We've they had the abandoned Lord. the Lord, and now the Lord is doing exactly what he told them he would Absolutely. do. This should not have come as a surprise, but we as humans are quick to forget. But I think that's a really great... Uh, you're reading from the New American Standard where it uses the word abandoned there, right? Yeah, excellent. Very good. Okay, so let's continue on with the story. Let's see what happens in verse 14 and following. Let's read 14 through about 
18 or 19. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, which I thought was interesting. He didn't really delve into his questions. He says, just go in this might. You are mighty man. You shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he says, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he says, I will wait until you come back. So this is just, I love this particular text for reasons that uh, Mr. Nita was talking about a moment or so ago. But the first thing that jumps out to me is the uplifting, encouraging language that God uses with Gideon, continuing to 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 bolster him. Um, and sometimes people just need to be encouraged uh, because people are oftentimes more capable than what they realize they are. You know, you, you, could, you could lead that song, you could lead that prayer, you could read that scripture, you could teach that class, you could invite that person. No, I can't do those things. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You kind of sometimes just gently push them. I can't be, uh, I can't give that ride because it would just be too awkward. Uh, what am I going to talk about for 30 minutes on the drive or whatever? Well, just, just do it and try, you know. Um, verse 15, does this sound similar or does this sound familiar to anything? And the one that we already pointed out is Exodus 3. That's the big one that, uh, as you're reading this, you're like, am I reading Exodus 3 and 4 or am I reading Judges 6? Because they sound so familiar. Are there other places in the, in the scriptures, and I'm looking for in the Old Testament, and if you saw my notes ahead of time, you, you know there's two that I'm going to point out, but those, that doesn't mean those are the only two. This is two I thought of. Other people in scripture in the Old Testament that said, mm, I think you got the wrong guy. It's easy to think of David. David is a good example. I didn't put him up here, but David, absolutely. Why, why is it easy to think of him? Explore that a little bit. powerful like his older brothers um, but God knew uh, what he could do from because of his heart yeah remember God said there in, in what first Samuel 8 first Samuel 7 first Samuel 8, 8 um, God looks at the inside and knows the character of someone we look at the outside and can't see what God is able to really uh, understand very good Moses. Moses absolutely Moses is huge in, in this. Um, who am I? Find someone else. <laughs> I'm not worthy. I'm not capable. I can't speak well. One that I thought of was Isaiah. Remember, what, what did Isaiah say in chapter 6? He says, I am a man of unclean lips. I am not worthy to do this. And, and, that, and I'm not suggesting that Isaiah was, was being a, a bad guy here. He, he was responding in the way that probably most of us would respond. If God sends an angel to you and says, you're going to be the one to speak to the nations. So, <laughs> no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Okay, fine. And then what, what did God do uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 to signify 
that his lips were prepared. Took that coal, of, that coal, right, and cleansed him. The idea of fire cleansing. This one I hadn't thought of, and that is uh, Jeremiah is a very similar character in that he says, I'm not, I think it's in verses 6 or 7 or 8, one of those, one of those verses, says similar kinds of things. Who am I that I should be the one to carry out this great message? So God expects great things of us. He sets the bar high. He, the standard is, is to excel. And that was the case with Gideon as much as it was the case with, with Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Do we, do we have any history of Gideon being hmm. as a history of like being a man of one at times and might have been a valor with reference to individuals who were strong in battle? Do we have any references to Gideon prior to this? I'm asking that question now legitimately because I'm, 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 my, my brain's circling here to try to figure this thing out. But I don't know that we have much about Gideon up until this point. It's a position he's putting him in. Absolutely. Him Puts him in that, back. right? And referencing to him as the mighty man of valor. No, it has many different right. It, it could be a military uh, designation or it could be just him calling him out for what he knows he's going to do. In the future, we know that God knows all things, so he knows of his, of his character, which is the word that Jonathan used a few, moment, few moments ago. Um, verses 17 down through roughly verse 20, we didn't read all those verses, but he says, show me a sign. How does God respond to that? He says, okay. So, you know, someone said, it was Jonathan. Jonathan and I, I'm calling out Jonathan now. Uh-oh. Jonathan and I had a conversation about this three weeks ago, and he made a really good point, and I wanted to come back to this, that Judges is not just a story or an account of the sinfulness of the people in this cycle, though that's, that's huge. We had this discussion. It's also exhibiting incredible patience and forgiveness on the part of God. And I thought that was, that's a really good point that we didn't bring out in our introduction Judges is, a, is an account of God's patience and how he's willing to be long-suffering in the way that he has always been. Um, and here he says, okay, let me show you a sign. I'll do that. And who appears again to him is the angel of the Lord. All right, let's drop down. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes left here to get through um, quite a bit of stuff here. But let's read verses 22 through 24. Gideon perceived that that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And so Gideon built a place, uh, built an altar. The Lord is peace, still known that day. Um, what do we know about seeing God from, pre- from previous places? Yeah, I'm sorry, Nate. No man can see him and live. So there's a couple passages that I, that I brought up. Just real quick, we're not going to read these because we're not going to have time. Genesis 32, verse 30 is the account of who? Starts with a J. Jacob, the great wrestling match. Uh, Exodus 33 is what we talked about uh, a few months ago with Moses. And then we'll talk about this in a few weeks. 
But what happens in Judges 13? Do you remember what happens in Judges 13 with Manoah? Right. Samson, the whole idea of Samson. And, and, and Manoah's wife is the one who says, calm down, you're not going to die, um, in essence, because if, you, if that was going to happen, it would have <laughs> already happened. Uh, so there's really something to be said about this. Uh, I wrote an article a number of years ago. I'll, I'll try to look it up and reread it, um, see if there's anything good in it. Uh, but if you want it, I'll be happy to give it to you about seeing God's face and what that means and what that may not mean. And uh, I should have looked that up for tonight, but I didn't. So, Okay, uh, let's go ahead. Verses 25 through 35. We are not going to read all of those verses. Um, what, what's the big event that happens in those 11 verses? What does Gideon do? Okay, sacrifices, and what, someone else says something else as well. What does he do to the, to the Midianites? Yes, he, he goes to the Midianites, and he goes after their altar, and they get up and they say, who has done this? And their immediate response was, we know who it was, right? There was, there was no real question as to who was responsible for this. Just a couple of points about this. I know we're kind of going fast here, um, but I want to pick up verse 31. Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. I thought that was kind of interesting. Would you plead for Baal? What does that mean? Defending. Defending. I think that's a good word. You may have a different word than plead in your, in your text. But uh, the irony, again, here is, and the silliness is, if he wants to fight back the false god, let him fight back. Let him stand up and say, I, I disagree with this. I'm going to show you all, right? And we've seen this happen elsewhere in scriptures uh, as well. And then verse 33, I wanted to point out, the Midianites, the Amalekites, people of the east gathered together. They crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Now, that battle doesn't happen in chapter 6. The heart of it is not until, Lord willing, next week when we get into chapter 7 in our study. And then let's go ahead here. We, I think we have enough time. Let's read 36 to the end of the chapter. Uh, this has always been fascinating to me. Uh, again, showing, as, as we talked about, incredible patience on the part of our Creator. Verse 36, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then verse 39, Gideon said, I like how he starts. He says, don't be mad. <laughs> don't be angry. But let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And so God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew 
on all the ground. And then there's no more. Can I ask you another question? <laughs> Colombo, right? Can I ask you one more thing? Um, do not be angry with me. Um, oh, why did I? Oh, I, I forgot. Uh, we, I didn't talk about the cutting down the Asher of the Canaanite goddess. Uh, okay, we talked about that. All right. Um, the fleece test. Where did I put that on here? Here it is. Do not be angry with me. Anything we can learn from that statement? Either about Gideon or about God. And I can't, we've kind of delved into that already, but I wanted to focus in on that statement for just a moment. The proper attitude, proper attitude towards God. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and again, this really kind of underscores, once again, the incredible patience of a God who was working with someone to kind of build his character, build his strength. And kind of like we talked about, someone mentioned very, very early, Gideon was known to God to be this person. And, and God says, I'm going to work, I'm, I'm going to make something really, really outstanding out of you, more so than you could probably appreciate. Anything else on the first or on all 40 verses? Brother Jonathan and... And Brother Bruce. So we'll go Bruce, then... Uh, did you have something, Jonathan? We'll, we'll come back to you. Okay. Well, that's fine. Brother Bruce. I just wanted to go back and maybe shed a little light on uh, Nate's question about valor. Mm -hmm. I think the Holy Spirit reveals in verse 14 and 15 why he was a man of valor. If he wasn't then, he was going to be. Verse 14 says, Have I not sent thee? Verse 15 said, Surely I'll be with thee. If God be for us, who can be against us? Hmm. You know, Excellent. We're, we're the mightiest on, on this earth if we believe and we trust in God and God is on our side. Mm -hmm. We can do anything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to do those things. That's an excellent observation. Very good. Thank you for bringing up those verses again because this is one of those places in Bible study where all the verses provide context on the other, the surrounding verses provide the context to the verses that you, we just read and that we're going to read. Uh, Brother Jonathan, thank you, Bruce. I was, and just Rachel and I were both sitting here thinking that what Gideon's Gideon's uh, approach to God was the same as Abraham mm -hmm. when he's he's realizing what he's asking is really quite bold in one sense, um, and to say, oh, you know, let the Lord not be angry with me that I'm asking this. Um, but I think that shows a great deal of faith to have that kind of boldness, and it speaks to the kind of boldness we can have, Hebrews talks about, right. as we go before the throne of God, not presumptuously, Excellent. and not assuming that God owes you something and demanding anything, but say, well, may the Lord not be angry, but I'll be bold to ask. I think that's a great observation, and I'm assuming you're referencing Hebrews 4.16, I think is what it is. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Yeah. And I, and I love the way that you, you phrase that. We never go to God in, in, with a sense of entitlement or pompous or I'm here, now you're going to listen to me. But you've commanded us to pray to you, and I'm going to be bold enough to ask you for big things. Jesus even talked about when you pray, pray. Uh, someone talked about praying big and the idea of praying boldly, those things going together. 
Uh, anything else in the first 40 verses before we spend our last uh, two and a half, three minutes on some applications? Okay. Uh, as always, uh, I wanted to end our study with some applications. Uh, why is chapter 6 in the text for us? We know why it's there. It's there to give us this account, but what do we learn from it? And it can be a repeat of something that we've already talked about in our previous 40 minutes. Uh, I have three, but what, what do we got? Strength lies within God, not in ourselves. Beautiful. I like the way you said that. Strength is within God. What else? Someone says, why did you study Judges 6? Well, that's what was on the curriculum. Right? No. God's in control. Uh, God is in control. Very good. He's in control of this whole thing. And we sometimes think that... we. We've got to figure this all out. Let, let God be God, right? Let me share with you three that I came up with here. Uh, one is going back to one of the big themes we've suggested tonight is the patience of God. And we'll do well to remember this. God is very patient with us. That doesn't mean we try his patience on purpose. There's a difference in that, right? It doesn't mean that we say, well, I can do whatever I want because God's going to be patient with me. Well, No. I've got to do my very best to, to seek and do his will, but he's very patient with us, um, and that needs to be appreciated. Okay? Two, there are real consequences to sinful choices. Uh, remember the, the reason that Israel was hiding in the caves. When we sin, there are consequences to our sin. Now, it may not be that we hide in caves because of sin. It could be that we hide in caves because of persecution. And that's, and that's okay if that's what happens. But when we sin and then we suffer because of it, we know why. And then the third thing, uh, in spite of a lack of faith at time, we can turn out to do great things and be mighty men, uh, mighty men or women of valor. Uh, and, then, and maybe rephrase that a little bit. In spite of all the challenges that get us to where we end up, we can end up being what we want to be. Uh, or, or closer to what we want. I guess we don't ever get to be what we really would like in, the, in this life because we, we have our faults. Um, but someone wants to put it this way, and we'll close with this, that thanks be to God that he doesn't judge us just simply on the weakest moments of our life, that we have the opportunity to change, to repent, to move forward, to improve, and say, I'm sorry for, the, for my weaknesses, uh, and with his grace, we are made clean in his sight. And that's just a beautiful thought. Last uh, 15 seconds. Anybody have anything? All right. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll do seven. Uh, and we'll try to do either part of eight or most of eight as well. And I think we'll be able to do seven and, and eight as well. Thanks for your good comments. Appreciate it.